Welcome back, everyone, to the Plains on the Prairie podcast. I am Max. And I'm Sam. And today we are on episode six of our North Dakota ACES series. Gone fast. It has gone <laughs> fast. And, you know, I'm I'm really excited about this episode today. Um, pretty high-ranking individual. I yep. think he was the commander of, I think, his combat squadron, if I remember correctly. He was, yeah. Yeah. So um, today's subject is Lieutenant Commander Leonard Check. Um Pretty interesting guy. Uh, I know before we had started, Sam, you were mentioning there's a little bit of overlap with some of the campaigns that he fought in. There is. So this video or this podcast on video <laughs> might be a little shorter because of that. Um, we can we can dive back into it. But if yeah, you absolutely. want a little bit more info on the campaigns, uh, check out our last episode on Clarence Borley. And that one mm-hmm. will we'll, we'll mention, we'll like, oh, he deeply. was fighting in, you know, the Formosa yep. area. Or yeah. And like we'll, we'll talk about that and just kind of. We'll dive into it a little bit, but yeah. just uh, if you want to listen in more on that campaign uh, on Formosa and on Alete Golf, go ahead and give episode five a listen. Perfect. So, yeah. Cool. If you're ready, I'm ready. Yeah, let's dig into it. Let's do it. So, uh, Leonard Check was born on March 4th, 1911 in Berwick. I, I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, Berwick, North Dakota, um, just north central part of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say a little bit up past rugby. I know I have a couple friends that are from rugby and that's sure. about the closest I've been. I mean, it is the center of the continent of the United yes. States. So disputed, yeah. but yes. yeah, disputed, but I would say so they have the geographic marker. Um, but I, I saw that he spent most of his young life growing up in Williston. Yes. Yep. So I have not been to Williston. I, maybe I have been to Williston. I can't remember, but really out of the way. It yeah. really is out of the way. <laughs> Uh, but what makes Leonard interesting is that um, he always had, I'd say, a, a, a military was his, his end to goal. serve. Yes. Um, in 1931, I believe he enlisted in the 164th Infantry Regiment of the North Dakota Army National Guard, which I should mention, I'm actually reading their history book on called Citizen Soldiers right nice. now. So when I saw that he had been a prior member of that, that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm currently on, on the interwar chapter. I just oh, finished sure. World War One. So yeah, I need to get that book. You find you found it, I suppose, on I, eBay. Or I, yeah, out of here. Um, someone had donated an extra copy oh, here, nice. and you know we already had one in the museum's library, so it worked out. Perfect. Um, but yeah, after his uh, tenure with the North Dakota Army National Guard ended, he enlisted in the normal, just regular active duty army, which is also a very different. Like usually it's, you know, normal active duty army and then National Guard. So going from National Guard to, you know, active duty is pretty wild. Right. A little backwards. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And I I couldn't find when he got out of the active duty. Um, But I know after his army tenure, then he enlisted in the Navy. And I think we found that he was just immediately assigned to pilot training and after training was assigned to what VB six or seven yeah, VB six uh, aboard the Enterprise, mm-hmm. so he went the bomber route before he became a fighter ace, which yeah. is kind of interesting. <laughs> it's I've read many stories about bomber pilots or scout pilots kind of lying about having fighter experience. So there's <laughs> this one guy uh, he he was uh, mentioned in that uh, fabled fifteen book that Borley was a part of. Um, he was a Kingfisher pilot, and he shot down a zero with a Kingfisher. And mm. he just ended up kind of snaking his way into fighters saying he's got a got an aerial victory in a kingfisher, which is, I think, more impressive than yes. getting a kill in a wildcat. I was going to say it's, it's very yeah. impressive. 
Um, but yes, yeah, so, and he, he was in the Navy pre Pearl Harbor, pre-Pearl right? Yeah. Harbor. So yep. actually, I think my research, he was on, you said the Enterprise while it was on its way to Pearl Harbor or when it was out yep. doing maneuvers and it during was the attack. Yes. Yeah. So he, te- he could have. I mean, he would have been there he had the carrier been in. Well, and that's still one of the biggest what ifs of, yeah. of World War II history is like, what if all of those carriers. If they had back? been yeah. lined up. Absolutely. Yeah. But thankfully, he missed out on that. Um, he was on the Enterprise from 1940 to 42. So quite almost or just a little over two years, uh, March, March 13th to March 16th. Mm-hmm. You know. um, and what combat would would he have seen during that time or would it have if been? any it would have been nuisance raids just and patrols and patrols stuff like that. yeah gotcha so nothing too much probably anti-sub scouting and stuff like that but he most likely flew dauntless is the majority of his time because uh 1940 they were just starting to get introduced late 1940 mm-hmm. so gotcha. um, probably some bt1s northrop bt1s or you know other scouts the interwar there's a lot of different type of aircraft out mm-hmm. there so um, yeah, and then after 42, he was sent back stateside to become a flight instructor at uh, Naval Air Station Corpus Christie down in Texas. Yeah. Um, the This is where we will kind of reiterate the doctrine of the U.S. pilots or U.S. how they dealt with pilots is if you had any experience in combat, you came back and you taught, taught that instead yeah. of then you're always keeping fresh pilots, but you're also getting experience and bringing experience to the new pilot mm-hmm. or new recruits. And your attrition isn't as hard as like the Japanese yeah. were. Because I know when we've talked in the past, you said that the Japanese, you know, they sent their, you know, like their best. China campaign, like Pearl Harbor, Midway survivors. They they never got sent back. Well, right. It was always combat for them. And when they were inevitably shot down and killed, you didn't have that experience to train, you know. Right. And going in, even of course, the Japanese had the advantage coming in with their experience. I mean, they could have at least had four years of combat experience with the China Sino-Japanese War yeah. starting, well, the disputed time starting in 1937 mm-hmm. or Kalkin Goal in 1939. So there's plenty of opportunities for them to get combat. But, but yeah, thankfully, the U.S. had the manpower and just the will along with this doctrine yes, that really all absolutely. made a good mix. But he did that until um, 1940, late 1943. Um, and then he was given command of VF-7, um, flying F-6F 3s and 5s aboard the USS Hancock. And the 5s would have been brand new at that time, Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yep. The 3s were coming in June, started around, or the 5s were starting to come in around June of 44. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he more than likely was equipped with um, with a 3 at the end, or just as he was taking command. Gotcha. And it said that so his second combat tour would have started um, beginning in October of 1944. Yeah. And let's see. It said that um, his first kill wasn't that, a, if I remember correctly, it was against, uh, was it a Betty? Yep. A G4M Betty. Yep. So, uh, yeah. One of those Japanese land based. Yep. Could you really call him a heavy bomber? It was probably more of a, I'd classify it more as a medium yeah. bomber. It was a naval. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it was. Yep. So the Bettys were a naval aircraft. Um, I did not know that. Through, or, the Naval Air Force. So yeah, they uh, that was his first kill. Um, all of this was pretty much off of the Philippines at this time, part of the Battle of Leyte Gulf and the largest naval engagement of of, of history, yeah, really. So for real. <laughs> or of World War II for sure. I mean, maybe Armada, Spanish Armada type thing. Yeah, probably before, to, but 
flying machine. But on scale of like destruction and yeah. just all that. Yeah, this is this takes a cape. So yeah, that was his first kill, taking down a Betty. Um and then a couple yeah. days later, um let's yeah, intercepted uh, an attack force that was heading towards his carrier carrier, and he shot down, was it four Vals on yes. that mission? Yeah. And Vals, they were the the dive bombers. Yep, the right? fixed gear. They were getting pretty antiquated by this point in the yeah. war, but I mean, uh, of, aircraft, aircraft is still a threat. Per, well, yeah. the production of Japanese aircraft was significantly lower than that of the U.S. The U.S. was already, always able to keep modern aircraft on the field. Gotcha. Japanese, not so much at this point in the war. Uh, let's yeah. see here, because Vals, if I remember correctly, were dive bombers. Dive bombers, yep. Judy's, were they, they early were, or late war torpedo bombers? They were late war dive bombers, actually. Oh, they were? So the Judy, okay. the D-4Y, Yokosuka, D-4Y, Judy. Then what? you're you're thinking the Jill, the, the Kate, Jill and the, and the Kate. Kate. The yep, Kate came first. Gotcha. And okay. then the Jill replaced that. Gotcha. B six N, yeah, B six N Jill. This is why we have you on the podcast, Sam, because you know something. all yeah. sorts of <laughs> Japanese stuff. <laughs> Can't speak it, but that's important. hey, that's, that's you, you know talking. the reporting number or codes. Yes. Kind of like, you know, the Russian ones. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm not allowed to say MiG 15s reporting number. Sure, yeah, we don't need the FCC <laughs> coming after us. Um, so let's see, he shot down the four valves, making him an ace, and then was it that same mission that he was credited with damaging an improbable zero? Yes, you know, busy day. I, yeah, no kidding. I, I we've had this conversation, and it, with some of those guys, that I mean, how many of our aces have scored? five or four in a day they've all gotten well uh bloomer got four in a day yeah register got four in a day four really got four they make it day. sound like yeah. it's easy <laughs> yeah it's just insane yeah oh my gosh um so yeah he and then let's see in the following month in november he was he managed to shoot down a tojo um just south of manila and it um crashed i think into the what, manila bay mm-hmm. um and then not even <laughs> a couple it literally says here minutes later Scored an Oscar also that went down into Manila Bay. I, I feel like we could dedicate an episode to talking just about the different variants of Japanese of aircraft, aircraft yeah. that they had. He's got such a mixed bag here. I mean, it was a mixed bag at that point. Yeah. It was um, where you had like Guadalcanal is mostly naval air, Japanese naval aircraft. In the Philippines, you had quite the mix. Like gotcha. two. So, so far he's at, um, he's at seven victories and one probable. So mm-hmm. We have the Zeke, the Vals, and the Betty. Those are all naval, but then you get the Tojo and Oscar, so you're starting to mix it up. And those are Japanese Army? or Air The Force? Tojo and the Oscar, yes. Okay, gotcha. So was the Japanese Air Force very similar to the American Air Force of World War II, where it was a subsidiary of the it Army? It was of the Army and the Naval Air Force. So gotcha. they actually had two subsidiaries. One was Jap- Imperial so Japanese like- Naval Air Force, Imperial Japanese Army Air So kind of like a naval aviator and an Air, Army Air Force. Exactly. Pilot. There gotcha. was a difference. Okay. And there was a, a huge rivalry, more, oh, yeah. more than any other service, any I, other country. I can imagine, absolutely. Um, and let's see, in December of 1944, he shot down another Betty and another Zero, and then that brought his total to nine. And then on January 3rd, 1945, he got his final kill against George. Yes, and that's um, Holy really impressive. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah a lot, a lot of first names here. <laughs> I'm for real. <laughs> um, unfortunately, uh, the next day on January 4th, 1945, um, Lieutenant Commander Leonard Check was killed in a mid-air collision. Um, I don't know how. How do you pronounce Haido? Haido? Yeah. 
Hydo, I'm going to yeah. say Hydo, Hydo Airfield in Formosa. Um, yeah. That, and that it's, it happens. I mean, mm-hmm. and, um, the weather was poor. Yeah. You're not going to see someone else in a cloud. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a go in at your own risk. And I, I couldn't find any information if it was, was it another Hellcat or an enemy? Air- I, I found friendly in one source, but it wasn't very solid. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Who knows? But yeah, he was um, quite the decorated uh, airman as well. I mean, not just, you know, a double ace, mm-hmm. but you have to think he'd been in the military since the early 30s and he got tired of the National Guard. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to make a career out of the I mean, he could have very well gone into Air Army Air Force pilot training. Right. Didn't do that. And, you know, that's one of those things that's unfortunately lost to history as we'll mm-hmm. never know. Like, because wasn't um, oh, who was our. uh was it no register was navy who was um uh cohen, no. cohen was everything yeah cohen eagle was squadron eagle squadron yep. and he was turned down by the army air force right so so he went to canada yeah. yeah take matters into your own hands yeah well and I guess this guy I'm... it's just he dedicated a good chunk of his life already at this point he went to the service at 17 he was 34 when he, when or he was 33 killed. i guess yeah. but still that's old that and is people younger than us were were well Look at Borley, 20 years old. I know. Town five. It's, and it's just... I, that always blows my mind is, you know, you see some of the ages of these aces when they were, you know, racking it up and they're. And we've probably... only ever seen them as old men. No. And it's just. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, so moving on to the second part of the show. Um, v. Yeah. VF seven. Yep. VF seven fighting seven. Yeah. Part of air group seven uh, was established on January 3rd of 1944. Um, so. Basically, right away, Czech was the first uh, commander of the squadron. Uh, and this and it was aboard the USS Hancock uh, CV nineteen. So that was an Essex class carrier, similar to well the Essex. Yeah. So that we talked about Probably last the most, episode. Yeah, most the most produced yep. carriers. Yeah, and they were um, first equipped with the F six F threes, and then moved into the fives. Um, and they embarked on the or to the Pacific. Um, in late 1944, uh, they did an Atlantic tour, a short, oh, just really? kind of basically patrol type type uh, thing there. Um, and really not that I couldn't find any like uh, victory totals or anything like mm-hmm. the other squadrons. We've been able to find like the 15 last last episode was. Yeah, that was yeah a, they, there's quite a bit of information. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you know, was Czech commanding VF7 when he was killed? I'm assuming so. I didn't find anything, but usually, if there he would have been promoted up, yeah, Yeah. or yeah, yeah. So he was most likely squad commander, and yeah, and then the the unit was established after the war, just like many many other units in 1946. See, I I always thought that a lot of those Navy squadrons, like the ones that are still around, they have Mm. such incredible histories, Mm -hmm. and you know. I know the Air Force likes to maintain a lot of those legacies that existed with their fighting squadrons of the Second World War. Obviously, a global war, you're going to have right. more squadrons than you need in peacetime. So, right. you know, some of those ones the that react. Yep, yep, exactly. But with the Navy, you know, when you're sending every squadron into combat and they're having these incredible track records, like how you can't preserve the legacy of all. So, no. Yeah, a lot of the squadrons we have today were born from, you know, an original number, mm-hmm. you know, yada, 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 however many years ago during the Second World War. And the Navy, I mean, VF-7, just like the previous 
Navy squadrons that we've talked about, they just couldn't quite make it. Right. Not to say that, you know, in the future, they couldn't. It, 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 it's been it's, done before. It's been done, and, you know, you, you never know. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and then other notable engagements. I mean, we talked about Leyte Golf. Um, we talked about Formosa. Formosa was just, um, it was a rough one. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of casualties in the air. I mean, Borley was a Formosa casualty yeah. earlier than than um, Czech. Um, thankfully, Borley made it out. But, um, yeah, Formosa was just a, well, we talked about it last time. They were there were more there were more bases at Formosa than they had originally anticipated. It wasn't well mapped. There's 26 bases. They assumed there was like Japanese bases. Yeah, I'm kind of shooting from the hip on the number, but I think they mm-hmm. assumed it was like 11 Ball or 12. Park, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it was just a lot more yeah. stout than they thought. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and then uh, VF7 also later on sir, uh, provided air cover over Okinawa and oh, Iwo Jima. Yeah. So. Yeah, gotcha probably pretty rough air campaigns out too yep, from absolutely. a ground attacks perspective. So, but yeah, that's a really interesting one here. Yeah. Um, uh, and then the final one, uh, I know we couldn't find any surviving Hellcats in no. the markings, but what I thought was cool about their tail markings that you might be able to explain is it's an up, is it a right side up or upside down horseshoe? It depends on how you look at it. Yeah. I would consider it looks like the Indianapolis Colts for any yep, football exactly. fans. So. And so I think that's yeah. right side up. But yep. um was that common for squadrons? For that, yeah, they would have tail codes or tail markings. They um the Navy is very strict about um about nose art. So mm-hmm. like uh look over there if you look on the shelf there. Um so to explain it, there's the VF twenty seven. Um off of oh, or VF twenty yep. six, I forget the number, but it's off of the USS Princeton. Okay. But uh, they were they had the cat, the cat mouth uh, markings, and uh, they, the Navy hated that. The Navy they? hated that. So some of them had bloodshot eyes like this, some, and they all had the dripping blood off of it. But the Navy hated that. So what happened was the Princeton was the only light carrier to be sunk by conventional methods. Um, uh, a Judy actually dropped one right through the deck and really uh, it sank oh they had to scuttle it um so all of the princeton aircraft are upright at that point and they had to land on essex and other larger carriers um the essex uh skipper was so disgusted that he that night they had to paint over all the, the all the shark mouths um wow. so yeah it wasn't regulatory so but yeah they would have a tail marking this plane itself isn't i was gonna say other accurate. than the the nose art there's this a lot of twos on it. Yes. So. Yeah. So there's um. Well, it's even got the radar dish. I I feel like. Yeah, threes didn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was um kind of a navy thing. The only, the only drawback, if you would say, to the navy was that they weren't allowed to have much for Nozar other than like us, like Mincy. You know, yeah. just like a a, little, a name or something a name. Like yep. That. No, like uh, raunchy Nozar or anything mm-hmm. like that. So, yeah, yeah, not not much on specific VF uh, seven markings, but any glossy blue f6f5 is pretty darn close i was gonna say um other than that horseshoe shape do you know any other shapes that would have been utilized by like a sister unit or a squadron Um, i don't know the squadrons on top of my head but um i've seen clovers i've seen just checkers like there's like a one where there's like a white checker um in kitty corner and then just corner of the tail yeah so there's a lot out there i mean there's at the end of the war there's just a ridiculous amount of squadrons on escort carriers light carriers and uh just standard 
carriers in general. So Absolutely. there's just a lot. So, but yeah, this was a fun one to research. Um, we have four left. That's it. Four that we know of. Four that we know of. Yeah. We'll see. I, I've been looking in my free time a little bit. <laughs> Finding a lot of Minnesota. That could be another episode. Could be another series. I yeah. that, um that Ace's book that I was telling you about before we started recording. I Even if it doesn't have the signatures, I might want to pick that one up. Yes. That oh. one, who knows? There might be another one that we, we might have missed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, do we want to talk just briefly about some some news? Yeah. So both of us ended up at Battle Lake. Yeah. Um, this was after we recorded the Borley videos or podcast. So that was a good time. You got yeah. a, a nice way of getting there. Yep. I I got to ride down in the back seat of uh Harvard, basically mm-hmm. uh, AT six G model. I mm-hmm. think is what by you know Air Force conversion standards, whatever you want to call it. Um, but yep, I want to thank uh, Kelly P, who is a board member at the Fargo mm-hmm. Air Museum, for giving me that chance. Um, it was awesome. Yeah. It was incredible. Just, you know, I my first, I, I know we talked about it in a previous episode, but my first Warbird flight was in the L5 at Wings of the, or Wings of the North's um, Air Expo. You know, it's, that's a light plane. Mm. And the T6, that was just different. Yeah. strong like you could feel the power when you're in that point well and it, you've you've had quite the year for warbirds I, already, quite been, three I, months yeah, yeah I, I i was joking i i guess i gotta wear my my uh, little five mm-hmm. um l5 shirt more often when yeah. i'm at these air shows and whatnot but yeah it's i i don't take that for granted it was no. it was a very incredible um experience i got to say it was for the museum which it was we mm. took a lot of film and promoted it so it's very cool. Yeah, there's a lot of really good turnout despite the heat. It was mm-hmm. really hot that day, but yeah, we had uh, two steermen start show up. Um, three T6s. Um, we had when we arrived, there was the um, you guys were the first T6, yeah, we were the first T6, and then there was then, the, the uh, South African, the South African one showed up. Yep, the Lindemans. I hope I'm saying their name right. We've then, interviewed them before, then uh, and then um, the one from Wapiton, yep, showed up. Uh, in the markings of a forward air controller mm-hmm. one. So pretty cool. Yeah. Um, we'd love to see more. Oh yeah. Won't say no to them. Yeah. So. The T6 Thunder used to fly out there all the time. Mm-hmm. That was pretty cool. Yeah. But that's, that's a can't miss one every single year. Um, so I'm, I'm excited for next year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're, they're hoping to get a couple more big name museums that are in Minnesota. It would be nice. Yeah. yeah. If you know who we're talking about. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd say one more thing that I'd like to talk about is the recent trade, so to speak. May, this might ruffle some feathers, but um, that's why we're here. We want to talk about it. So the recent acquisition of a PT-17 by the National Museum of the United States Air Force. And before we begin, this PT-17, it's not just any old PT-17. Mm-hmm. It is, as far as I know, one of two surviving PT-17s that is known to have flown and trained with the Tuskegee Airmen, the famous all-black fighter mm-hmm. squadron of the Second World War. Um, the National Museum of the United States Air Force really wanted this plane, and they were willing to trade. I don't know the specifics behind the condition of the donate or of the trade, but they traded a bubble-top P-47D for it. Um I've seen differing comments about 
um, how people think about this. Um, Sam, I, I kind of wanted to pick your brain and I'll provide my two cents on it. Sure. But on one hand, I see this trade as crazy a little bit. Like I, I get the historical significance mm-hmm. of the PT-17, but for a multi-million dollar restoration project that is the P-4070, I, I find it very incredible. And I, I get the ball was probably in because the the rumor is that it's going down to Florida to be restored to airworthy condition and then go to the Collings Foundation because they were the original owners of the PT-17. Hmm. Um, so my guess is that the ball was completely in the Collings Foundation. Oh, yeah, for court. sure. And well, because they have this fun, the airworthiness. Exactly. It, so. And they're like. Yeah, my opinion on it, I wouldn't like say I'm like die hard on a side. Mm-hmm. You know, it is what it is. Yeah. Some people need more to worry about it. I know. But, uh, but uh, I don't know it on paper. Yeah. It's for sure. Lopsided. Mm -hmm. That's a one-sided trade money wise, Yep. but it is the national museum of the U S air force. Again, it is a 47 with some interesting history, Um, but, but there's no, what, on the other yeah. hand that I see more of that I'm, I would say that I'm more on this side is you are trading a documented historical aircraft that has some incredible ties to the history of the U S army air force mm-hmm. and, you know, the American military as a whole versus a P 47 that never flew with the United States exactly. army air force, or if it did, it was briefly and then sold off to one of our allies and then just repainted to be a P 4070. I see a lot of comments that are saying, like, what does this mean for the restoration group? They should be proud of their work. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, would you rather see something that has documented history with the U.S. Army Air Force instead of something that's just painted? It's more of the story for a, a museum as high profile as the it, Air Force yes, Museum. They exactly. they can get a 47. Yeah. They, they, they already have one, I assume. They have a they have a Razorback. A Razorback, yeah. Yep. And it's, I get it. I get both sides, mm-hmm. but... And we got to think, think the significant significance of the 17. Yes. Is more important. And we got to think how many P-47s are, you know, that the Air Force Museum has access to parts wise that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. I The Air Force Museum, the board of directors and the people that are involved there, they strike me as very smart individuals. Oh, yeah. They wouldn't just give away a 47 without having at least an idea like, hey, we already have a what what is the bubble top? Is it also a D version? It'd be a D or an N. A D or an N. Um, and then the Razorback was that... a D or a B. Okay, um, but most likely a D. Gotcha. It's just like a later model of the D, gotcha. the D Mustang or the D Thunderbolt. Gotcha. So, you know, they they're they're scheming something. Yeah, and but... it's you know museums do trades all the time. Exactly. I mean, it's it's just that this one is catching eyes because it on paper it seems very lopsided. Yeah. But we'd love to hear what you guys think about this, either mm-hmm. on our Instagram, Facebook, you know, wherever podcasts can leave comments, I yeah. guess. But other than that, um, that kind of wraps it up for this week's episode. Uh, yeah, yeah, we appreciate I, you guys tuning in. Yeah. And stay tuned for the next one. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we'll see you.